That was Denise Graves and Greg Baker singing a duet from the opera, Margaret Garner, which was given its world premiere at the Michigan Opera Theater in 2005. It was produced under the guidance of Opera Theater's founder and general director, David DiChiara, who commissioned the opera and who's one of the recipients of the 2010 Opera Honors. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. David DiChiara is a legend within the world of opera. He's founded two opera companies, the Michigan Opera Theater and Opera Pacific. He served as artistic director of the Dayton Opera Association and as president of Opera America. And in 2007, at the age of 62, he composed his first full-length opera, the acclaimed Cyrano. David DiChiara is known for his commitment to the city of Detroit, for encouraging African-American artists in all aspects of opera, for forging collaborations with other opera companies, and for supporting the composition and productions of new operas that reflect the communities in which they're performed. He has brought American opera into the 21st century, and for that, he's received many honors and awards, most recently the 2010 Opera Honors from the NEA, the highest award the country gives to the art of opera. I spoke to David DiChiara about his long and storied career. Here's our conversation. I'd like to begin at the mm -hmm. beginning with a question of, were you always interested in music when you were a kid? Did you love music? Yeah, I did. I did. It's interesting because my parents uh, were immigrants from Italy and had never gone to school. So I had no real kind of orientation to classical music. And I was the youngest of four children, and my older siblings simply had no interest at all. But I started listening to the Met broadcast like when I was seven or eight. I would listen, first of all, there was a fairy tale program called Let's Pretend, and it came on before, and then came the Met broadcast, and I would continue listening. And I was, I was just simply overwhelmed and fascinated by it. So music was always something that just captured me. And when we moved to California, I was 10 years old, and I just wanted badly to have piano lessons. I needed to, to know music besides just listening to it. So my older sister bought me an old piano, and it was out in the garage, and I'd go there. And I was afraid, but I wanted to practice, so they'd come and bring their books and sit while I practiced. <laughs> it was kind of amusing, but... <laughs> so it was just something that, you know, that I had to do, something that I seemed absorbed by from the earliest years. How did you move from practicing the piano downstairs to getting a career in music? A lot of kids <clears throat> love music right. and even right. like practicing the piano, but right. it's a big step to actualize yeah. a career. Well, ultimately, when my older sisters realized that I was serious about this, they pulled their earnings together and bought me a better piano so I could be in the house. And then I... I 
kept taking lessons. And at that time, and for the next number of years until I went into college, I really wanted to be a concert pianist. That was the thing that thrilled me the most. And then I realized when I was at uh, UCLA as a music major, piano major and the undergraduate, that there was just a lot of talented pianists. And, uh, and I also found it a very lonely process going into the rehearsal of rooms, little cubicles, and trying to practice three or four hours a day besides doing all the classwork and so forth. And then one day, one of my uh, teachers said, why don't you join the opera workshop? I think they may need a pianist and coach, you know. And so I did, and that was just heaven because it was it was beautiful music it was everything it was everything it was it was people it was collaboration uh it really set for me what i thought was you know especially and exciting uh was to to be part of something bigger than myself because the being in an opera in whatever, in whatever way, whether you were singing, whether you were the pianist, or whether you were working in backstage, you were part of something that was such an exciting adventure of putting a great work together. You became a professor of music. I did. I taught. I got a uh, Fulbright to go to Italy. I wanted to do uh, a Ph.D. in musicology and uh, determined that I wanted it to be an opera. So uh, I was looking for an area where the history of opera was, there was a vacuum, and there was that was the Neapolitan school, 18th century. I did a lot of research on some of these composers that people didn't know a lot about. And based on that, then I came back to UCLA and finished my uh, my doctorate. And then I thought, okay, now I need a job. <laughs> Now what, you know? So I started, you know, the, the search for a professorship. And um, and then I got this call from the, this chancellor of a university called Oakland University. And he calls me and he says, we're starting a theater or a department here and we'd like for you to consider. And I said, well, Mr. Varner, where is Oakland University? And he said, oh, it's in Rochester, Michigan. I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, just north of Detroit. So I go out there in April. And here I am on these fields uh, out there in Rochester. And with there are just two small buildings there. And it's freezing. And he says, well, this is where our university is going to be built. And, and it's all up to you to design what you think the arts should be here, you know. And I thought, hmm. First of all, it's cold, but <laughs> but I kept thinking about the decisions, and I thought, you know, I'd rather go somewhere where I could create things. So I went there and got very involved in developing um, what was called the Meadowbrook Theater and the Department of Music and the uh, Meadowbrook Festival, which was very exciting at that time. But after an, about seven or eight years, the university just felt that they could no longer really sustain that festival. And I was chairman of the music department at the time, and uh, I decided there was no opera company in Detroit. All that, that Detroiters had was a weak 
every May of the Metropolitan Opera on tour. For the most part, people thought, well, what more does somebody want except a week of Metropolitan Opera? I mean, that not that the height, and, you know, of all? <laughs> that surprised me, considering that Detroit houses the Detroit Symphony, which is one of the world's great music institutions. And it had been founded in, I think, in 1918 or something, yeah. and which is one of the glories of uh, one of the most wonderful concert halls in the country. And, uh, but at any rate, opera just never was there. There, there were a few aborted attempts, etc. So I started very slowly. I said, okay, we need to do something really to just get an audience beyond the Met audience. So uh, under the sponsors of the Met, I created a program called Overture to Opera, and I would produce scenes in English from the operas that the Met would bring. So it was like an introduction. It was a way to... We'd go into schools. We'd go into communities. I would do a kind of a Leonard Bernstein act, you know, and introduce everything, give a little bit about the music and so forth. And... um, in a few years, I began to cheat. I would do several scenes from, from the Met, and then I would do one-act operas to show them that we could actually do you know, more than a scene from an opera. And audiences were responding to They these. were. They were. And we had a lot of volunteers in each community. They would sell tickets to the events if they were evening events. It was a mat- if it was a matinee, the schools provided the students. So at one point, I I went to the mayor's wife and said, look, there is a need for an opera company in this city. We have audiences. They are interested. I said, the Mets one week a year is not about servicing a community. I said, because an opera company should be working in the schools year-round. It should be giving opportunities to local singers. It should be building audience. It should be all those things. So that was the beginning, but I did it very slowly because a lot of people thought, well, this is a blue-collar town. They're never going to sustain an opera company, you know. So you began Overture to Opera in 63? Yes. And when did Michigan Opera Theater? Well, the first full production was the Barber of Seville in 1970. And uh, we did that at the Detroit Institute of Arts. It was a, There was a full theater there, a very nice theater. But working at, in the a museum was not very good because the security was unbelievable and you couldn't get in there when you needed to and so forth. So uh, one of the members of the committee that I'd put together found a beautiful little theater called the Music Hall. And I went to the owner he said, well, I'll let you have it for a year or two, but if it doesn't work out, we're going to tear this down and for a parking structure. I said, oh, no, we'll make it work. So we opened our season there in 1971. And, of course, that was three years, four years, after the riots in Detroit, which had begun a tremendous kind of exodus into the suburbs. So a lot of people were really saying, David, why do you think you're going to open a theater downtown when most Which, most people are leaving it and so forth. And I said, because cultural institutions belong in the heart of a city. And I said, the symphony is still here, the museum is still here, it's not going to go anywhere. So the opera should join it. It should be here. 
So that was the beginning. We stayed at the music hall for 14 years and then outgrew it because be, productions began to get larger. Let me just interrupt yeah, you for a second because you, you said that you were determined to reach beyond the traditional opera audience and reach out to the community. Can you talk about ways you, you tried to do that Well, and ways you succeeded, yeah, clearly? Well, I tell you, one of the things I felt to do, we were in the city of Detroit the majority of the residents are African-American. So I thought it was an absolute essential thing for us to do is that we needed to reach out and build bridges into that community as well as any of the other communities that were there. And from the very beginning, I began looking for to launch and to nurture African-American artists. I had, I did productions. I remember a production of Faust. All of the uh, principals were African American. I thought that was very exciting because people would come and they would see themselves on that stage. They would realize that this is an art form that can speak to everyone. It was also about going into the schools, giving them programs that taught about opera, that gave them a sense you not only play opera for them, but give them the experience of feeling as if that they can be creative. I have two questions, and they're related, and they're also related to the opening of that beautiful opera house in, I think, 96. Right. One is ticket prices. Opera costs so much to mount, and I think it's often difficult to bring people in, especially for the first time, because it's often a major financial commitment, and people are uncertain about that. How did you grapple with that? Well, from the very beginning, we had ticket prices that were modest. We just had to be sensitive to a community. If we wanted an audience beyond an audience that could afford that, was really about trying to make it a much more democratic kind of a thing, making more people feel that this was not something beyond them. I mean, opera has suffered so much from the whole elitist image. Well, that's something you have to really counteract because I believe, as many do, that, that opera is an art form that speaks to everybody. And if it does then you have to wait, find ways that everybody can feel as if they can access it as well. Well, the other thing that you had to grapple with as your new theater was opening is that Detroit has taken a lot of economic hits, and they're certainly taking one now, but they were taking oh, yeah, and a big hit then, too. While I was doing fundraising to build the Opera House, it was that was a very difficult time, the early 90s, and, uh, and so it took us a long time to raise the money. We bought this old theater movie palace in uh, late 89, and we were raising money as we did the work. We weren't trying to just borrow a ton of money and do it. So we didn't open until 96. It was six years, actually. And even then, we weren't totally ready, but my friend Luciano... Luciano Pavarotti. Yes, Pavarotti. When I had brought him in there to see this derelict building, uh, which you could hardly get into, and he came in and 
I said, well, Luciano, this is going to be an opera house. I said, what do you think? And uh, he, so he kind of, you know, opened his mouth, sang a few notes. Yeah, David, this might be a good house. I tell you, you do it, I will come. I will, I will open it for you. <laughs> and then as we got closer, he gave us a date. And we weren't really ready, <laughs> but we made ourselves ready. <laughs> Another way I just wanted to in terms of building audiences and reaching out into the community was also to create works that reflected those uh, audiences. We didn't have the resources to do a world premiere on our first season. It was We were just desperate to open. But I decided that when we were ready, that it would be an opera that would celebrate the African-American tradition and history, etc. So I was very pleased... I think it was 99, I brought Denise Graves to come and do Charlotte. And um, while she was there, she came to see me one day in the office. She said, you know, David, I have been in touch with the composer, Richard Daniel Poor, and he's been wanting to do an opera based on the story of Margaret Garner, who was a slave who escaped and then was captured. And Toni Morrison had agreed to work on the libretto. And I said, I said, that's the perfect story. What a dream team, you know, Toni Morrison, Denise Graves, and Daniel Poor. And so that was our first world premiere in the opera. We, I was really pleased because I also invited Cincinnati and Philadelphia, two other cities that had a large tradition of, of African Americans and also had challenges in that way. Uh, Cincinnati was, was going through a very tough period, and they came aboard, and it was, a, I thought, a wonderful consortium of three cities that would uh, bring this work to life. Well, you're known for that. You're known for making partnerships with other opera companies. I think everything's about collaboration, you know. I was uh, honored and uh, and privileged to have the opportunity to work with opera companies when I was elected president of Opera America in 1979, actually, because it gave me an opportunity to put some of the things that I thought were really missing in, and I'm concerned about looking at opera as a, as a viable art form and that opera companies as being uh, viable. When in 79, first year that I became president, there was only one company, and it was a very small company in Toronto, that created a new work. And um, we began challenging ourselves to come up with some answers. What do we do to further the art form so that opera companies are not going to spend the rest of this century just doing old operas, being a museum? And, um, and ultimately, we came up with a concept to get grants bring some money together to use as a carrot to our colleagues and say, here, take this as a grant just to explore an idea with maybe a stage director and a composer. You know, maybe it won't work, maybe nothing will happen, but here's some money to do that. And then if that works, here's some money to commission the opera. So that's the second part of the program. And now, if you've done that, then maybe here's some money to help you produce it. And we began the program, and you know, within a decade, 
there were so many works that came under that program, uh, Nixon and China. And so at the end of that decade, we began to realize now there's a bigger problem. It's not so much about creating new works. What was happening with cities throughout this country is the demographics were changing so dramatically. Remembering that the 19th century, when symphonies were founded and and some opera companies, etc., primarily these were audiences that were European descendants. So the whole idea of opera was, for the most part, a part of their tradition. And so the idea of now giving a carrot of support to an opera company to look into their community, whether it was a huge Latino community or large Asian community, but look into that community and say, find talent, whether it's a librettist or a composer or what, or a story or whatever, and find somebody to create a work that reflects that culture, reflects those people, and then make that a centerpiece of your season. And one of the things that happened is that the whole fluidity of musical styles became even greater. And you began to see operas in which the style was not only very classical, but could be influenced by the popular musics of various cultures. So it gave a huge panoply of musical styles as well. I think it enriched a lot of the repertoire, but at the same time enriched the audiences of these various cities. And so I think this is a beginning of really demystifying and making opera not feel so much always that it is a very special, exotic work, but that it can reflect so many cultures, so many peoples, in so many ways. In the meantime, you became the founding director of Opera Pacific in Orange County, California. So you were running two opera companies at the same time. There was a time when I was actually running three, was Dayton as well. I don't know how I did that. I was going to say, did you sleep? Well, I think I did. I think the key was that I was younger. (laughs) I think you can do a lot when you're young. I had no intention of going out and taking on more responsibilities. But after I had been president of Opera America, I was doing a lot of consulting and visiting companies and so forth. And here was Orange County beginning to expand its... And now suddenly it was becoming a very uh, important area and they did not have much of a cultural life. So they built this wonderful performing arts center in Costa Mesa, and now the people who liked opera thought, well, now we should have an opera company. So they call me and say, would you come and talk to us and give us some advice, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Well, that interested me because I was a Californian. And I said, well, you know, it would be an interesting challenge to start an opera company here. I said, on the other hand, I can't leave Detroit. I could never do that. I said, but we can work this out. You, I think a great time for for a season here would be like, January, February, March, which was a great time for me to be out of Michigan winters. (laughs) And so, you know, started that company from scratch. 
And it became very successful. Actually, it and Michigan Opera Theater became two out of the ten largest companies in in the States. And it got to a point where I needed to make a decision because now these companies were too large with too much potential, and I just couldn't both. And everybody in California thought I would, of course, leave Michigan because Californians tend to think that nobody wants to be anywhere except California. (laughs) (laughs) But then the decision I made was based not so much about the company. The decision I made was about the city because I felt as I was poised to create an opera house that I needed to do something that helped revitalize a city, that Orange County didn't need revitalizing. It was, it was fairly new. It was wealthy. And, and then I kind of felt the rest of my life was not about just producing opera. But what can opera do to be a force in revitalizing a community? I thought that was more interesting than the other. We all can do opera somewhere or another. So I made that decision. It was very hard because I, I loved the company. I loved the people that had worked so hard with me decided that I needed to retrench, go back into a city where there was a lot of potential, but also a lot of challenges, and that an opera house in the middle of that city would be a signal that there is something that community can be very proud of, and it could help develop everything around it. And uh, so when we did open it in 96, within Five years, you know, there were restaurants and some galleries, ultimately two stadiums. I, I, I live next to the zoo. I have the tigers in one block, and I have the lions in the other. <laughs> if you're a sports fan. Tigers all the way. Yeah, all the way. <laughs> and I'm very pleased. The Opera House has become a very important kind of catalyst in that whole area. That's what I felt had to be done. Let's talk about the opera you composed, Cyrano, which of course is based on the play Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, well, I'd, I'd love to talk about Cyrano. I've and, always wanted to write an opera. And how many years in the making was it? Seven. Seven years. Seven years, <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it got to the point that I said to myself, I've spent so many years convincing other people they should write whatever opera they want, whether it's got Latino influence or Asian or African-American and so forth. Maybe that means I can write a romantic opera and not feel totally out of it. (laughs) But then I never knew about, you know, what opera, what should it be? And Bernard Ouzon, who's a very talented uh, stage director and author and so forth, was directing for me. And he said to me, uh, you know, David, I've heard some of your music. And he said, and your music, he said, I think would be just right for the play that I love the most. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, what's Cyrano? I said, well, I know Cyrano. I said, but I never thought of it in that way. And he said, oh, let me take you through it. And so Bernard, being French and being an actor and so forth, came to my house one afternoon (laughs) and walked through the opera, being Roxanne, being Christiane, being Cyrano. And I have to tell you, by the end, by the final scene, I was in tears. And I said, well, Bernard, look, it's beautiful, and it deserves to be set to music. I said, but I'm not sure I'm up to it. I said, but I tell you what, I'll write one scene, 
and then we'll get together. You listen to it. If you like it, fine. If not, it's fine, too. So I did that. What I decided to do was to set the final scene. I've always felt that if you don't write a good final scene for an opera, that you've missed some of the most important part of it. And so I thought, let me see if I can make this work. So I did the letter scene and so forth, and so I played it for him. He was very thrilled with it. I said, okay, I'll start working on it. Well, Cyrano opened in Detroit in 2007, and you co-produced it with the Grand Opera of Philadelphia and Florida Grand Opera. And it was a major success in all three cities. It was a, it was a very good success, and I, I got mostly good, actually great reviews, except for one of my own local critics, which I had expected, and that was fine. I said, well, it's probably good for me <laughs> to just keep me grounded. It was a, a dream come true for me because I felt as if I had spent my whole life working with the community, doing things, but I didn't do anything that really answered my own inner emotional need. And so writing the opera was, and I tell you, it was scary because the night of the opening felt like you were walking on stage with no clothes on. It's so exposed, you know, when you do that. When you produce Puccini's opera, might not be the greatest production, but my God, you know, it's a masterwork. (laughs) You know, and you have no worry at all. But here it is, you know, it's it's you. And so it's uh it's it's a rather frightening thing, but also rather exhilarating. But I'm just as excited to present other other composers' works. In many ways I I feel that that I, there's so much still to do, you know. Well, I think certainly one thing on your docket has to be coming to Washington. In I'm very October. excited about that. How did you find out that you were a recipient of the 2010 Opera Honors? Well, I got a call from uh, Wayne Brown, and I've known Wayne for years and was always certainly pleased to hear from him. And he told me this, and I said, are you sure, Wayne? Are you really sure? I said, God, the people that have come before me in those first two years are all people that I'm absolutely in awe of, you know. But I said to him, you know, as much as it is personally fulfilling to me, and it certainly is, makes me feel very, very honored and very humbled by it. I said, what I really, what excites me most about it is that perhaps it means that some of the things we've done in a city which is a beleaguered city has been recognized. And I said, that makes me happy for those who have worked beside me making an opera company happen and an opera house happen. And with with our mission, I said, it means that that it had some resonance outside of our community. And that was this, for me, it still remains the special part. That was David DiChiara, founder and general director of Michigan Opera Theater and recipient of the 2010 Opera Honors. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Margaret Garner, written by Richard Daniel Poor and Toni Morrison. Performed by Denise Graves and Greg Baker. Used courtesy of the Michigan Opera Theater. Excerpt from Cyrano. Music by David DiChiara. Libretto by Bernard Uzan. The singers are Lee Partridge and Marion Pop used courtesy of the Michigan Opera Theater. 
The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, it's the father of Go-Go, the one and only Chuck Brown. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Oh,